W233AH Monticello. Good evening. Welcome to the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. But not for long. It's the second Tuesday of the month, and this is when we hand things over to Bill Williams for the latest edition of the Kingfisher Project. What we're about to hear tonight is uh, an excerpt from a much larger conversation that Bill had. Remember, you can hear the rest of this conversation by signing up for the Kingfisher Project podcast, which you can find at WJFFradio.org. Welcome to the Kingfisher Project, information and awareness about the heroin and opiate epidemic. I'm Julie Pazal. The Kingfisher Project began in memory of my daughter, Rebecca Jean Pazal, who was shot and killed due to her heroin addiction. At her memorial service, her former teacher, Mr. Okazalik, read an essay she wrote. It was about a bird, an injured kingfisher bird that she found and rescued when everyone else had given up on the bird. In that spirit, our community came together and formed the Kingfisher Project. Since 2014, we have been raising awareness about the drug and opiate crisis in our listening area and around the country, right here on Radio Catskill. Here is Bill Williams. Thanks, Julie. My guest today is Carol McDade. Carol spent over three decades in Washington, D.C., refining public policy addressing addiction and mental health at the government relations firm she co-founded in 2000, Capital Decisions. Ms. McDade provided clients with public affairs consulting on issues that spanned the breadth of health care, including behavioral health, Medicare, Medicaid, and private sector reimbursement issues. Carol also served as legislative advisor to the successful coalition effort to require addiction and mental health as essential health benefits under the Affordable Care Act. In 2004, to make a difference at the local level, Ms. McDade co-founded the McShin Foundation in Richmond, Virginia, with her husband, John Shinholzer. McShin is a nationally accredited nonprofit, full-service recovery community organization committed to serving individuals and families in seeking recovery from addiction in the state of Virginia. McShin offers peer-to-peer recovery support services that include recovery coaching, mentoring, and housing. Because Ms. McDade personally struggled with addiction, She understands the challenges, political and personal, of dealing with alcohol and drug issues. She currently serves on the boards of the Recovery Advocacy Project, Mobilize Recovery, and the Hanover County VA Community Services Board. Carol, after all that time on an intro, do we have any time left to talk? Sure. If you don't mind, can we begin the Carol McDade story at the beginning? Tell us how all these wonderful things you did and have done and continue doing, how they came to be. You know, I'd love to tell you that I sat down with some kind of advisor in college or something and said, you know, I want to chart my career with you on how I can make a difference for people struggling with addiction and mental health. But at the time, I was one of those people, and um, no such plan was made. Like a lot of people, our careers find us, and I definitely was one of those people. Um I definitely, I grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina during a time when we had um, integration of schools, and I began my love for social justice because I was at a, I was bused about an hour away from my home to a 90% African-American school when I was in sixth grade, and I was 
stunned at the condition of the school, the condition of the projects that the school was located in, and I realized that, wow, there are some real differences in how people are living in our broader community, and this isn't fair. And my love for social justice, I think, was born there. Um, I grew up uh, with probably everything a kid could need, but I did grow up in a, in a household with a drug-addicted and alcoholic father, and uh, there was some abuse, and um, and so it became very important to me to get out of my household and connect with other kids, many of whom were living lives like me out in the suburbs with everything money could buy, but not the kind of love and support at home that might be ideal for a kid. And the one thing that I did get um, was access to good education. I'm very grateful for that. It built in me a love of learning, and it I, because I was a kid growing up in the 70s, I was very much involved and in, in, in interested in, you know, uh, George McGovern was running for president, and this is the Watergate era, and there was a lot of uh, interest in, I think, trying to make our government a better place, and that was something that really turned me on from junior high school on, and so when I went to college... I continued to use misuse drugs and alcohol all during this period uh, from the time I was like 12 on. and um, But I continued my love for trying to make a difference and trying to be make politics uh, a better, cleaner kind of profession. And so I majored in political science. Um, I unfortunately OD'd at a frat party, and the college asked me to – it was a private university, and they asked me to – graduate early and, and move it on down the road, which I did, and I ended up in Washington, D.C. I was working as a paralegal at a law firm. This was before litigation was digitized, and I was stamping five-digit numbers in the bottom right-hand corner of documents getting ready to go to an antitrust trial that were about 300,000 of them. So you can imagine this was an all-day, every-day, very boring job. And a senator who was retiring from Capitol Hill that was going to come to the law firm I was working at to start a legislative and lobbying practice, I think, took pity on me because he passed me in this fishbowl conference room stamping documents all day, every day. And he had uh, me start running errands for him running uh, to get copies of bills. This was pre-email, if you can believe that. Um, And I was running, going up to Capitol Hill, grabbing copies of bills that had been introduced that day and bringing them back to him at the office. And he began to test me to see if I bothered to read them on the way back, which, of course, I was intellectually curious, and so I did. And um, that kind of moved me from wanting to be a lawyer. I had moved to D.C. to go to law school at night, but my addiction was really getting worse and worse, and I knew it was going to be tough for me to pull off going to law school at night, working full-time, and continuing to use like I did never occurred to me to stop using, but um, I ended up, this this senator asked me if I would prefer, instead of being a paralegal, to be a legislative analyst for him, which I jumped on when he told me that part of my job would be uh, getting my own American Express card and entertaining people on Capitol Hill for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and drinks at night, and I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. So that's how I really got into the lobbying business. And I don't know, six or seven years after that, um, Bill and Hillary Clinton uh, in 1998 were trying to reform the healthcare system. 
Uh, it did not happen, but I was working on that, and one of the clients that my firm was working on it for was a outfit called the Hazelin Foundation, which is headquartered in Minnesota and has uh, rehabilitation facilities in, in spots all over the country. And um, that's how I began, you know, working in the addiction and mental health space. Um, I was scared to tell my boss because people were not open about their recovery status back then that I had actually been a patient at Hazelden. And I decided if we, we were, you know, going to go up there and I didn't want him to be surprised by having my counselor, who was an advisor to the board, like show up and give me a big hug. So I told him I was, I had been to Hazelden and he said, what, did you go there for a conference? And I said, no, I was a patient there. He stopped what he was doing. He looks up from his papers. He was signing, and he says, you're an alcoholic? And I said, yes, and a drug addict. And um, I went to Hazelden as a patient. And then so he stops. He he breathes out this big breath, and I'm thinking, oh, my God. I've just sent out these announcements that I'm going to be this vice president at this firm. And um, he stops. He paces back and forth, and I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to tell my mother I got canned, you know. And all of a sudden he goes, they're going to think I'm a genius, McDade. This is perfect. We're going to tell them that I hired you just to service their business, and you're going to go on and become the best addiction uh, lobbyist in Washington. And, you know, sadly, he, for better or for worse, even though it was a little bit uh, of a subterfuge, he, he laid out my career path that day, and that's exactly what I did. Well, I, I hope I'm not interrupting, but <clears throat> last night when I was falling asleep, I said, how, how could I describe Carol's career? And um, <clears throat> I said, here's what I came up with. It happened not by design, but by seizing opportunity. And you threw in some cocktails along the way. That's exactly right. You, 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 you said it much more shorter, shorter and succinctly than I did. But yes, that's exactly right, Bill. Between the moment he made that decision and then you founded, co-founded Capital Decisions, how much, how much of a gap? What, what, what was that time period and what was going on? So um, I, I got hired um, in um, 1993 by him, and he ended up passing away, unfortunately, from lung cancer in 99. And someone else took over the firm that did not want me. Um, I was starting to work against the health insurance industry in order to pass that parity legislation that you talked about in the intro. And this new owner of the company wanted me to work for the insurance industry since they're the one with the deep pockets and not against it. And unfortunately, I didn't want to work for the health insurance industry, even though I had been a lobbyist at Blue Cross Blue Shield for three years when managed care first came into being. And I realized it was more about managing dollars than managing care. Let's put it that way. And so it, there was a span of seven years before I went and started my own firm. Got it. How does one go about starting their own lobbying firm? Well, you know, I'm sure there's plenty of ways to do it that would be market-based and you'd see, you know, where the areas of needs are. I just started using my Rolodex 
which we had, which, which is where we kept our contacts back in the day. And I called a, um, a man that I knew owned his own firm, and I asked him if he was willing for me to come over and talk to him. And at the time, I really didn't think I was going to start my own firm. I just wanted to – I had some portable accounts that I could bring with me, which is everything in that business. and did a lot of businesses, right? So I told him about that, and it turned out that his largest and oldest client was Anheuser-Busch, and my largest and oldest one was the Betty Ford Center. And as it, as it turned out, Betty Ford and Augie Bush had a long-standing debate and dislike for one another over the Anheuser-Busch frog on the lily pad commercials, which I don't know if any of your listeners probably remember. But in Mrs. Ford's mind, Anheuser-Busch was starting to cater to kids and to get them engaged in the drinking culture earlier and earlier, which she disapproved of. And she told the Bushes, uh, the Anheuser-Busch folks, how she felt. And they thanked her very much for her input and ignored her. And so we realized that there would be this huge conflict because one of the things that clients were working, asking me to work on back there was an alcohol tax, which, of course, would have been squarely against where his client was. So he said, well, what about if we spin off a separate firm. And so that's what we did. And I had most of the behavioral health and sort of the do-gooder social justice clients over at my firm, Capital Decisions. And of course, we had to have separate everything to pass the lobbying restrictions and stuff. So we had separate bookkeeping, separate everything. Um, But I had my own firm within a larger firm, which had a lot of benefits because um, I wasn't you know, he had enough money to to donate to politicians, and the, the firm had their own pack, and I did not. So it worked out. It worked out really well for both of us, and it worked out until I retired uh, at the end of this year. Yeah, so you're, that's right. Your retirement is very recent. Now, does the firm? Yeah. Does the firm still exist? It does. It absolutely does. I had a colleague, um, Holly Strain, that worked with me there for 21 years. And I have left it in her able hands. Lucky Holly. Yes. Well, and that's what Duffy, you know, the my mentor, the one that I told you got me kind of going in this area, he did that for me. He he left me with a few clients, and I wanted to do the same for Holly. I'm a big believer in karma. You're listening to The Kingfisher Project on the Local Edition. I'm Bill Williams, and I'm talking to Carol McDade. She has spent three decades in Washington working on public policy that impacts addiction and mental health. More with Carol after this break. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. Today on The Daily... The explosive allegations that workers from a crucial U.N. relief agency participated in the October 7th attacks stunned the world late last month. What the accusations mean for Gazans and for Israel's war strategy. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. I'm Husserl Grace KG. And I'll be getting my Black History Month segments during the month of February to get into some history, then and now. 
So check me out Tuesday, 7 to 9, on The Music Emporium. Till then, please remember that if Radio Catskill isn't on your radio, your radio really isn't on. Peace. Welcome back to the Kingfisher Project on the Local Edition. I'm Bill Williams, and I'm talking with Carol McDade. She has spent three decades in Washington working on public policy that impacts addiction and mental health. She is also co-founder of the McShin Foundation, a nonprofit full-service recovery community organization. Things move slowly on Capitol Hill. I don't think you, you don't need me to tell that tell you that we know that. That's correct. I guess my question exactly. for you now is: Have they ground to a halt? Well, I will tell you. You know, you probably could get fifty different opinions on that, but it it that that grinding of the halt. And the lack of either side to work with the other on getting things done, even when there are very narrow margins in the House and Senate between Republicans and Democrats so that they really, to pass things, they have to work together. I would say um, that, that, that the, the toxic relationships and the, the pace at which things are moving or are not moving it led in part for me to decide to retire a little earlier. I'm 63 than I intended to because I just I couldn't take it anymore, especially when some of the issues that, that we work on together, Bill, are, are literally life and death. And to have someone say, well, you're not going to work with the Republicans on that or you're not going to work with Democrats on that, like it just – Knowing full well that I'd have to to get anything passed in out of either chamber, either House or Senate, it, it just it started to wear on me, and um, I felt like a lot of the the legislation that we had got passed to combat the opioid epidemic, while some of it's helped, things like naloxone, I think, have reduced the, the overdose death rate. We're still finding that fentanyl deaths are going up, uh, fentanyl overdoses are going up, even though in some parts of the country, the death rate is going down, the overdose rate still remains high. And I think the reason why there aren't, you know, as high of death rates in some places, although it's not true everywhere by, by any means, is because of the use of naloxone and, and things like suboxone, a medicine to treat opioid addiction. I've, as I've thought about the question I just asked you, I've I've come to believe more and more, and stop me if you think I'm wrong. But if if we have hope that there, we have more hope in terms of the uh, drug abuse, drug addiction, the epidemic, whatever you want to call it. Uh, there's more hope with what we do at the grassroots level and grassroots organization than there is with with big with government waiting. The things are, seem seem to work better on a small scale than they do on the large scale. Did I express that I think, clearly enough? I think you did. I think you did. And while while there is a role for um, big government to get out, I mean, you know, we got in the last in the from thirteen to twenty two, we got ten billion dollars out of Washington to combat the opioid epidemic. Most of that went to the states. Um, and so there is a role for big government, but I think when you talk about how it is spent and how it is targeted and how it can best help local communities, absolutely grassroots 
groups or local organizations are much much better equipped than Washington to decide how this money ought to be spent. So mm-hmm. I think that I think you're right, and and that's one of the reasons why you saw in my resume I'm working for my local county's community service board, which helps you know uh, give. Uh, resources to the indigent who have addiction and mental illness problems. And I do a lot of work with other boards that that are working at the state or local level as well. So, um, yeah, and that's why we started the McShin Foundation, too, so that we could um, get faster results at the local level. Well, I don't know whether you're unique, but you probably got to be one of the few people that has worked at both the large, large scale, the national level and at the local level. Probably plenty of others that that enjoy that same um, experience, but I'm grateful that I have done both because it really gives you a sense of how much quicker you can get things done at the local level. Tell us a little about the McShin Foundation. Yes, well, in uh, we started it in my husband John Schindholzer and I started it, hence the name McDade and Schindholzer. We put it together to come up with the name of the place. And we did it in two thousand four because frankly we were running out of sofas at the house and um we were taking people in who in the county in which we lived in Virginia, um I spent my week in D C and my weekends at home in, in outside of Richmond and there was a 23-day waiting list for any type of substance use help at all. And in many states in the South, and this only changed here within the last eight years, Medicaid did not cover uh, individuals with substance use disorders unless they were pregnant or had, or, uh, had children. So all basically males were just cut out of any services if they were uh poor or didn't have private insurance. And that that put all this pressure on the indigent county system to try to find help for people, and they were just overrun with it. And so we, and I was doing all this work in Washington trying to save the world nationally, and I started to feel a little guilty. I wouldn't do anything in my own backyard other than having people, you know, stay at the house so they could get on their feet. But, um, and my husband would try to help them find jobs. And, um, you know, everybody would be detoxing cold turkey back then. And um, because heroin was a big, you know, was the big issue back then and crack. But, um, yeah, so we we decided we had our daughter was growing up and we were running out of sofas. And so we decided to start a nonprofit. And my husband did most of the heavy lifting. I just kind of helped with fundraising and that kind of thing, but he got the nonprofit started and we had no business plan. I wouldn't recommend it, but we had no business plan, no budget. <laughs> we just self-funded and, uh, you know, and we also, because of what I do and what his beliefs are, we also did a lot of advocacy at the state. And sometimes we called out the public system for, for not, you know, helping enough people and not doing it in a timely way, which kind of made it impossible to then go back and ask them for money. So we, we did a lot of fundraising from individuals 
in recovery or their family members, and between our money and theirs, we helped stand the place up for the first couple of years. And then later on, we, you know, got SAMHSA grants, and we, we got some other grants to keep things going, and eventually we, we did get some money from the state, and um, yeah, and we've been going strong ever since. Uh, how many people do you serve, and what do you serve, have you served, and uh, yeah. what kind of services do you provide? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest things that people don't really realize can be such an asset in the community is we have a very large three-story recovery community center, and it's basically like the, uh, you know, central hub of all things recovery in our community. We hold 12-step meetings of every kind. We have, McShin has its own recovery program. Um, we have a free day program where people can come just for the day. We have about 150 recovery housing beds. Virginia is one of those states where if you get an alcohol or drug conviction, you lose your license. So a lot of our housing is within walking distance of this recovery community center. And then for those people who want a higher level of care, we have specialized programs where um, they are gender-specific, where women and men are um, have a whole array of services, not just a recovery program, but we we connect them with their um, with detox, with counseling, with um, you know a nutritionist, um, an exercise program, gym membership, you know a higher kind of a higher level of program, probably more similar to what you get in the rehab, but instead of being locked away far away, you're you're in your community, but you're just um, our women's program is probably 15 or 20 miles outside of town. We found that some of the women were having a hard time recovering with, with people hitting on them and that kind of thing, so we separate them out. We're also pretty well-known nationally for our jail-based recovery programming. We're in jails all across the state of Virginia, and we've John, my husband does a lot of consulting with other states who want to set up jail-based programs, recovery housing, or recovery community organizations like McShin and other places. And so our model has become pretty well-known, and it's pretty replicable. So we've we've been happy with the way that what we've done in Richmond has been able to be spread to other places. Now, you said uh, at one point you said the McShin, you were describing the various 12-step programs, and then you said you have your own McShin Program? Are we talking? Is that a McShin recovery program, or is we, or is that the whole well, McShin? It's both. It's both. We have we provide a place for free twelve step meetings of any kind. So Smart Recovery, Buddhist Recovery, AA, NA, all of those. Um, anybody that needs a meeting place for some recovery related activity, but then separate and apart from that, we have a paid recovery program where an individual who, say, pays uh, $3,500 for 90 days and they get access to recovery housing, recovery coach, where they, they set up their own recovery action plan according to what goals they have for the, for the rest of their life. We help them, you know, get ID if they don't have it, get their driver's license, get all the things back that allow a person to stand up a full and complete adult life, you know, food stamps, like we'll help them get all that stuff together. Um, and then they also have, um, 
they have like programming all day, every day. And then they go to, you know, so we have facilitated groups by um, counselors. We have yoga experts coming in. So we have a variety of classes and activities for them during the day. And then at night, we take them to the 12-step or other recovery meeting of their choice. And then on Sundays, they have some type of spiritual practice of their choice. So we, we, we keep them busy. Um, but it's both, you know, a home for all, all things recovery, but it is also a home for our program itself. Got it. Well, that's it for the Kingfisher Project tonight, and that's it for the local edition. You've been listening to Bill Williams of the Kingfisher Project speaking with Carol McDade who spent more than three decades in Washington, D.C., working on public policy to address addiction and mental health. She's also the co-founder of the McShin organization. It's at mcshin.org, M-C-S-H-I-N.org. There's another 25 minutes at least to this conversation. You heard just more than half of the full conversation. The rest of it is at the Kingfisher Project podcast. You can find that at wjffradio.org which is also where we're always live streaming. I'm Jason Dole. I'll be back with you on the local edition tomorrow night. Do keep listening. Coming up, we've got Mr. Kusar Grace and the Music Emporium at 7. But before that, it's The Daily, right here on Radio Catskill. Local news, culture, and NPR. Support comes from Jeff Bank, Sullivan County's Community Bank, celebrating 110 years of service this year. Offering deposit and loan products for all your banking needs. Member FDIC and an equal housing lender. National Mortgage Licensing System and Registry Identification Number 405318. Jeff Bank. Still banking strong. And support comes from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill, local news, culture, and NPR.